0: So Easter is about two weeks away, and I thought I would kind of manipulate that opportunity and start a text thread with my whole staff and say, I need you for desperate and important spiritual reasons to text me the most embarrassing Easter picture of your family growing up. And I basically did that for your all's amusement. And so we're just going to take a couple looks at some classic family moments from the 4640 staff growing up. Um, Let's go ahead and put up the first one. Can you guess? Sarah, correct. Yes, this is Sarah's family. Apparently, Sarah used to have to wear very special foam curlers in her hair every Saturday night as placed by her mother to make that perfect barrel roll in the bangs. Very important in that era. All right, let's go to the next one. Do you guys recognize this family? Uh, Mom in the white dress, dad in the gray, little baby in the red pants. Pastor Will. That is Pastor Will's mom and dad rocking the 80s styles right there. Okay, next we have uh, Pastor Brittany laying down in the front next to her dog. Um, real important to get that into the photo, apparently. So that's a great Easter picture. Um, this is one of my favorites. This is Pastor Joe's family when he was growing up. And um, Joe is actually the baby, the brother Looks just like Joe, but that's not Joe. Actually looks a lot like Wallace, too. So there's Joe's family. We um, we had a lot of fun with these. Here's another one of Joe's family that Joe doesn't know about. Um, that, that was Joe at about age six or seven, full-grown man beard. Um, this is my family as a child, me and my older brother, Luke. I'm two years old in this picture, and my mom dressed me like a doll. My brother's back in style with the plaid pants, so... We're at least cool now. And then this is my boys just a couple Easter's ago. And i um, smiling and happy here at church. Notice how I did not make them coordinate. Um, which makes for a lousy mom picture, but it's okay, because they're pretty handsome. So as you can see, our sons, um, right there, we have an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and an almost six-year-old boy, and I'm one of those moms. I'll just admit it to you now, if you need to make fun of me in private later, I don't object, because I would make fun of me for this if I were you, and it is, I'm one of those moms that makes star charts, and the idea here, I know, it's okay if you groan. It really is. But my theory is, if by paying my child a small amount of candy or cash, I can get them to do something awesome that I need, without them fighting, I am willing to do that. I don't care how much gum they need. If it helps them later brush their teeth because they wanna win a pack of gum, I'm gonna do it. And so we have star charts on our wall and then we have ways that you can earn stars and at the end of your star chart, you can get either $10 cold hard cash, which is a lot of money to uh, eight, seven, six-year-old kiddos. And so they can either have cold, hard cash, $10, take that $10 bill to the store and buy something awesome at Walmart, or they can cash it in for some combination of candy and prizes throughout the time. There's lots of strategies being employed by my sons. Um, They get stars for reading books. They get stars for brushing their teeth without fighting because apparently that's a problem when you're seven years old. You don't want to brush your teeth. Um, My sons are still stunned daily that I'm asking them to brush their teeth both at night and again in the morning. They feel like that is the biggest injustice. And I'm willing to pay $5, $10 a month to make that happen because it's cheaper than the dentist. Um, But they have a lot of fun. They're cute. You can see them um, this is them this summer being adorable on the water, and so I'm happy I bribed those smiles with teeth brushing occasionally throughout the year. Now here as a star chart kind of mom, the truth is that I use it to like reward behaviors, but I don't use it as an excuse to treat them like crap. That may seem obvious to you. I hope it's obvious to you. That would be horrible parenting, wouldn't it? If I was like sitting in my recliner and I heard my three sons downstairs in their playroom and all of a sudden I heard like that blood-curdling scream, not the my brother annoyed me and took my toy, but the one that sounds like maybe one of them has accidentally hung themselves from the stairway and is dangling by a thread onto their death, the scary kind of scream. I have never once in all of my years of parenting, leapt up from my recliner, and ran to consult the chart, the star chart. I've never gone over to the star chart and said, should I help Benaya tonight? I mean, he really has not been brushing his teeth lately, and his book reading is very sketchy. I think I'm going to leave him in peril downstairs by himself to fend for himself. He may be bleeding. He may have chopped off his finger like Will. I don't know what's happened down there, but I'm going to stay out of it because of his star chart performance. You guys would think I was an abusive parent if I did that, right? No one does that. Instead, when I hear my kids scream and they're in need, I leap up from the recliner regardless of their behavior and I run to their aid and I see what is it that you need and how can I help you because all that matters in that moment is they're my kid and I'm their parent. Behavior Not that big of a factor in those types of moments. So when we start talking about God, and we say God is our heavenly father, that he loves us deeply and wholly and completely, and he's the most amazingly perfect father there could ever be in the universe, and I don't know if you're new to 4640 or if you've been coming for a long time, but I hope that you recognize that God is a good and loving and kind father. And I hope that you recognize that God looks at every person on earth as a son or a daughter and craves that type of relationship with them. And I hope that you know that God made a way that you and I and every person on this planet could have a personal, real friendship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And that we can all be adopted into his family. And the way we do that is we just simply go like, hey, I messed up. I've jacked up. I've made mistakes, and I'm sorry. Made mistakes, sorry about it. Please forgive me and lead me the rest of my life. It's giving over that control and leadership to God. And when a person does that from the depth of their heart, they're automatically adopted into the family of God, and God now regards them as his son or daughter. Galatians 4 in the Bible says, God sent him, meaning Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so he could adopt us as his own children. And so we find that we have this relationship with our Heavenly Father as his son or a relationship as his daughter, and he is loving and merciful and abounding in love. And if we're able to recognize, hey, wait a second, Jael, if you heard your kids scream in need and in pain and in hurt and you went and looked at the star chart to see if you should help them, And you can identify, as I can, that that would be jacked up. Why do we think God does us that way? Why do we think that if we are not behaving perfectly, if we have sinned or messed up in some way, why do we think when we turn to God and say, God, I need help, that God jumps up from the throne and and checks our behavior before he decides if he's going to help us? So many times people, even people that love God, even people who who are in a relationship with God through Jesus as Christians think, they live with this, this angst in their soul that says, God is pissed at me. God is mad. God is disappointed at me for some reason or another. And there are so many people that go their entire lives feeling like there's some kind of star chart in heaven and they haven't accumulated enough stars yet. They haven't accumulated enough good choices, good behaviors, church attendance, right attitudes to have enough star charts, enough stars on their chart to merit God's be- God's love. Or concern for them. And so there are tons of people, even Christian people, who live their life thinking God is mad. God is disappointed in them. But the Bible tells us that that is simply untrue. If I, as a mere human, know how to treat my sons well. If I, as a mere human, know I don't check their star charts to give them love. If I, as a mere human, know I don't check their star charts to help them when they are in need, then how can I think that God would be a worse parent than most earthly parents? Matthew 7 says, which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? If then, though you are evil, thanks, Jesus, but all right, then you who are evil would know how to give good gifts to your children How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who are asking for them? God knows how to do right by his sons and his daughters. He knows how to do it. And he's not only is he knowledgeable, he's willing to do it. Now, I'm not saying we can act however we want and there's no consequences. I'm not saying that there's not moral standards, right from wrong, and behaviors that we should try to do. But the reason we do them is not to win stars on a chart in heaven. The reason we do them is because God so loved us that our response becomes good behavior. It's not good behavior to suck up so he will love us. It's that he already loves us, and we can't help but respond back to that love with making right choices. But when we mess up, and we're going to, every one of us, myself included, I can think of so many dumb things I've done in just the last month. And when we mess up and when we call out to God and say, I blew it, I made a wrong choice, I didn't do what I needed to do, God does not monitor a star chart and check to see if my behavior has been proper enough for him as my heavenly father to come and rescue me. And this is a lie that so many of us are crippled by, that God's mad, that we've disappointed him, that we haven't lived up to his standard, that we haven't done enough to merit his help. And so we believe many times this lie that God's mad at us. And because of that, we distance ourselves from God. We're afraid to go to him when we do mess up. We think, oh man, I have to really distance myself and feel bad for a certain length of time before God would ever forgive me. So I'm just going to go ahead and punish myself by withdrawing from God for my bad behavior. When really the very thing we need to do the most in that moment is run to him. God is not a passive aggressive person that we have to suck up to to make things right with. He is the kind of God that sought us, us out at our worst most broken moment and came to our rescue. And the belief that God is mad at us is a lie from the pit of hell. And too often those lies to a son or a daughter stop us from ever getting to God after we mess up. That lie will delay us from repenting, delay us from drawing near, delay us from talking to God about the very thing. Now there's an exact situation that went down just like this in the Bible. And I want you to watch how this person that we regard as a hero of the faith, how he acted, and then how God treated him. And watch how through the story of this person's life, his name is going to be Abraham. You all have heard of him, I hope. He's a very important guy in the Bible, right? Watch as his life unfolds. Does God treat him as his actions merit, or does God treat him with undeserved mercy? The first thing is in in Genesis 15, it says Abram, Abram, Abraham, same thing, like Nicholas, Nick, okay? Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So how did Abraham get in God's favor in the first place? He believed God. It doesn't say he sucked up. It doesn't say he was morally flawless. It just says he believed the Lord. He had faith in God. And as a result, God said, you haven't done anything yet, but I'm going to go ahead and credit you as if you're righteous. I'm going to go ahead and give you credit as if you're already good, even though all you've done so far is believe. So Abram, Abraham is considered righteous because he believed God, not because he had a bunch of stars on his heavenly star chart. He didn't. He's, he's credited because of that. Then the Bible says, skipping ahead to Genesis 20, it says, Abraham moved south to Neveg, where he lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur. And then he moved to Gair. While living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife Sarah by saying, she is my sister. This is not a smooth move, gentlemen, okay? At no point in one's life should one ever introduce their wife as their sister. Very misleading, right? Now here's Abraham's thinking. We find in another place in the Bible that Abraham is actually scared because his wife is smoking hot. And so he thinks as he shows up in a foreign land, if he's got this smoking hot wife on his arm, that the the people of that land will kill him to gain access to his wife so they can marry her. So he comes up with this plan of I'm going to just lie and say she's my sister that way, no one will kill me to get my smoking hot wife. Instead, they'll suck up to me and give me gifts and junk because I'm your brother and they might, I might hook them up, you know, play wingman to them. So this is Abraham's plan. How many of you are thinking this is a good dating marriage strategy? Anyone? Okay. If so, you need marital counseling for a long time before you're ready to marry. This is a horrible plan. A horrible plan. She's my sister, okay? So he shows up. She's my sister. So then, verse 2, it says, so King Abimelech of Geir sent for Sarah and brought her to him at his palace. So naturally, upon arriving with a smoking hot woman in a foreign land, The king sees that she is beautiful and says, I want to bring her to my palace. Now, this isn't come over for tea and crumpets. This is come be my 15th wife or something like that. That's the basic undertone you're supposed to be catching in this verse. So the king sees she's beautiful. He basically gets her, and Abraham lets it go down. Abraham's like, bye, sissy. See you later, and lets his wife go to the palace to be the 15th wife or whatever you have of the king. And he's somehow cool with this. Uh, This is our hero, Abraham, right? This is the man of God. So he lies and he allows his wife to go. He doesn't protect her. He doesn't object. And so we find ourselves in verse three. But that night, God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, you're a dead man, for that woman you have taken is already married. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, wait, Is there a typo? Because it would make more sense if this read, but that night God came to Abraham in a dream and told him, you're a dead man because you said your wife's your sister, you stupid idiot. That would make more sense to me. I would be like, yes. I would not along with that text. That seems very natural. But instead he goes to Abimelech and says, you're a dead man. What did that guy even do? Verse four. But Abimelech had not slept with her yet. Thank you for that. He had not slept with her yet, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent man? Didn't Abraham tell me? She's my sister. And so she herself said, yes, he's my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. In the dream, God responded, yes, I know you are innocent. That is why I kept you from sinning against me and why I did not let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband, and he will pray for you, for he is a prophet. I would have thought this sentence would have ended. Return to her her husband, and he will pray for you, for he is an idiot. For he is a liar. That would make more sense to me for God to say he is as windy as a sack of farts. Like, just something insane because... But for God to call him a prophet, thanks, Sean. I can't go on with Sean carrying on like that in the back. So, so he says he's a prophet. Why? Because when Abraham and his wife were in need, God didn't go to a heavenly star chart and check Abraham's latest behavior to decide if he should help. He saw his son, Abraham, in need, He saw his daughter, Sarah, in need, and he said, I will go, even though they don't deserve it, even though they haven't done anything, I'm going to go to them and defend them without anything they've done just because of relationships. So let's put that verse back up there. He calls him a prophet, right? He says he's a prophet. So he speaks to Abraham, not based on his behavior, but based on his identity, right? He says, you're a prophet. Now, was Abraham acting like a prophet? No, not even close. He was acting crazy. He was acting insane. He was acting like he needed some mental help. He was not acting like a prophet, but God didn't say, oh, Well, lately your star chart under prophet's really lacking, so I'm gonna leave you standing here. No, God said no matter what Abraham's recent actions were, he's in relationship with me. He's a son, I protect him. He's my child, I stand up for him. So God is not angry with Abraham in this text, even though I'm kinda angry with Abraham when I read what he did. I'm like, this guy is nuts, why is God defending him? Because God doesn't base his defense of us on our behavior. He bases it on our identity. Verse 14, then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle, male and female slaves, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you want. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover any offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Okay, so who who messed up here? Abimelech or Abraham? Abraham. But Abraham is somehow favored by God to the extent that he gets a thousand shekels of silver, a whole bunch of... Animals, which equaled wealth, sheep and cattle and servants were given to him by the king when he didn't deserve any of it. In fact, I kind of think he should have had to march his little heinie down to the castle and said, here's a bunch of sheep and cattle and gold and silver and my servants, please give me my wife back. She's actually uh, my wife, not my sister. Sorry about it. Let me get out of your land before you kill us because I am stupid as a human being and I'm sorry for living. That's, that's kind of how I think logically the story would have unfolded, but it didn't not because of Abraham's star chart in heaven, but because of Abraham's sonship with God. So God stood up for him, God defended him, and God favored him when there was absolutely no reason that it should have happened other than who God is. Who God is to Abraham is father. And so this next verse is even more interesting, verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female slaves so they could have children again. So apparently also God struck them barren. Verse 18, for the Lord had kept all women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Okay, there's so much to say. Um, I want to begin in the very beginning in verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God. I wonder why the Bible says that. Because... Abraham and God were like father, son. You would think they would have been praying, like Abraham would have been talking to his heavenly father all along. But I wonder if maybe he hadn't been. Maybe when he sent his wife away as his sister, he felt so much guilt and so much shame for his lie. I wonder if Abraham believed the lie, God's mad at me, God's not gonna help me, I can't talk to God about my problems because I started this. I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. I'm crazy. I failed. I can't come close to God. I got to pull away, pull away, pull away. So God had to come in a dream to Abimelech and say, ask Abraham to pray for you because God was so interested in restoring communication between himself and Abraham And guys, what happens so much in our life is when we mess up, we buy into that lie that Abraham may have bought into. The lie that says, I'm stupid. I messed up. God doesn't want to talk to me. I feel guilt. I feel shame. I withdraw and withdraw and withdraw from God even more until there's no communication. And that is the opposite of what needs to happen. When when I... Learned this truth, it changed my life. When I mess up, I try to tell God as soon as possible. Immediately when I mess up, I'm just like, I blew it. I'm sorry, I'm an idiot, forgive me, Lord. Like the quicker from my mess up to my repentance, that lets me know how my real relationship with God's going. Because the longer I take to talk to God after I blow it, the worse I've really allowed my relationship with God to get. Qu- we're all going to blow it. I'm going to blow it every day. You're going to blow it every day. That's just life. It's, that's the human condition. We are going to mess up. So there's nothing spectacular about messing up that's significant. What's significant is when we go, I messed up, sorry about it, to God. The, the quicker we turn from messing up to repenting and getting back in communication with God, that's the sh- that shows the strength of our relationship more than our behavior ever could. The quicker we return to God, that's the showing of the depth of our relationship. And so I don't know what took place there a little bit. I'm assuming that Abraham felt so embarrassed. I know that's what I would do, that I would want to pull away. So somehow, in all of that, God has to tell Abimelech, hey, tell my son Abraham to talk to me again. And makes up. God makes up a reason to get them He and Abraham to start talking again, to bring things back in communication between God and him. So Abraham gets back talking to God after his big mess up. And what we need to learn from this is when we mess up, get back to talking to God as soon as you can. We're going to fall short. We got to get back talking. Like, everyone's heard of the Ten Commandments, obviously. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He said, these are the standards. These are the rules. Try not to break them. But when you break them, he wanted us to know what kind of God we were dealing with. And so it says in Exodus 34, it says, the Lord, he was revealing himself to Moses. So he revealed to Moses the standard of the Ten Commandments. And then he said, but here's here's a little bit of who I am. Exodus 34, it says the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So God wanted Moses to know the rules, but God also wanted to know Moses to know the character of the rule giver. The character of the rule giver is, yeah, there's a standard, but God is a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So my question is, how did God get a reputation for being mad at people all the time? Why, why, why do we think that as human beings, that God is perpetually mad? Micah chapter 7 says, where is there another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? Isn't that exactly what he did for Abraham, overlooking the sins of his special person, Abraham? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. It is the delight of our Heavenly Father to show us mercy and unfailing love. In the Bible, this is one of my most favorite verses, one of the ones I memorized as a very young teenager. It says in Romans 5, chapter eight, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. Jesus died for us without a heavenly star chart being checked. He died for us not when we were earning it, but when we were most messed up. And like Abraham, we get into that relationship by faith, not by perfection. There's this tribe in Africa, and there's a lot of tribes in Africa, actually, but there is people that go to tribe after tribe in remote areas, and their mission and vision is to translate the Bible to the language of those people, so these obscure African dialects, or they're doing it, of course, in the Amazon as well, all over the world, that they're like, it matters so much to get the Bible into the hands of these people so they can see and experience and understand God for themselves. So there was a particular tribe in Africa, and there was a missionary. His name is Dennis Faring and he was from NTM Missionary Training Center, and he was translating the Bible into this very small tribe in Africa, and he learned that there was ways that they spoke, and at the end of every verb, they had one of three endings. One ending, it would end in an I, it would end in an A, or the verb would end in a U. And those each had to do with the tense, kinda like we have E-D-I-N-G-S, like the three tenses. So they had I, A, and U as a verb ending. And so there was a word that was the word that translated for love, and the word is divi in one ending, or it could also be translated diva, D-A-I, D-V-I, D-V-A. And so he found that that one verb had no word that was spelled D-V-U. It never used that third ending And so he he sat down with the tribal leaders and elders, and he said, help me understand this word for love, DVI or DVA. Help me understand this word. And so the tribal leader said, he said, could you divide, DVI, could you divide your wife? And the tribal leader said, yes, that would mean that your wife had been loved, but the love was now gone. That was how that word would be translated. And then he said, well, could you devah, D-V-A, your wife? And the tribal leaders responded, yes. That would be the kind of love that depends on the wife's actions. It's a little chauvinistic, but it's their culture. She would be loved as long as she remained faithful and took good care of her husband. So then the translator asked, could you, is there a word that is D-V-U, could you devu your wife? And everyone in the meeting laughed. And they replied, of course not. If you said that, you would say that you had to keep loving your wife no matter what she did. Even if she never got you water and never made you meals, even if she committed adultery repeatedly, you would have to keep on loving her. We would never say, the it does not exist and the missionary sat quietly for a while and he thought of John 3:16 for god so loved the world and he realized the word would be devu in their language and so he said could it be that god devu you that loves you no matter what your actions are and the missionary documented that the men of the tribe began to weep and cry when they began to recognize that God had such a fierce love for his people that no matter what they did, how they acted, that it would never stop God from pursuing them in love. And friends, that's the truth. That's how God loves us. He is not mad. He is not consulting a heavenly star chart to see if we've been perfect or imperfect. He just simply loves And our response to his overwhelming love is, yeah, we want to act right. Yeah, we want to do the right thing. But if and when, pretty much when we don't, he's not mad. He just says, quickly come back to talking to me. Quickly pray. Quickly get back into communication with me. That's what he's after. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you love us with that devo kind of love, the kind of love that no matter what we do or how we are, that you are still pursuing us, that you call us by our identity, not by a shortage in our heavenly star chart. You don't even have a heavenly star chart. You just love us fiercely and completely. And God, we know that we're human. We know we're going to mess up. God, help us that if and when we do, that we will quickly come to you, quickly say to you, Sorry, help, I need you. We would never believe the lie that you're mad at us and that you wouldn't want something to do with us. God, we want that type of love and relationship with you where you're our father and we're your daughter, where you're our father and we're your son, and we're always connected no matter what. Thank you that you reached out to us first in this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.